Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List, coming at you with an episode today. Uh, today, before we get to the episode, we're going to start with the primary care pod at gmail.com inbox. That's where you can send me any jokes, any feedback, any uh, p- papers you want me to review. Um, that is primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. But today's joke that comes from the primary care pod at gmail.com inbox, I'm trying to set a record today for how many times I can say the primary care pod at gmail.com inbox. Um, the joke today is from an anonymous solicitor, Dr. List. Billy Joel is not responsible for mapping the Hobbit homeland. He didn't chart the Shire. I love that joke so much. Thank you. Let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, pod girls, pod boys, pod people. It's your pod doc, Dr. Mark List, coming at you today with another episode. Uh, and today's episode, it's going to be following our, um, eh, you know, not too uh, distant uh history of doing episodes about COPD management, but today we're talking about asthma management. And it's a new study today from the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, right? Uh, People that use uh, or manage uh, asthma and allergy symptoms a lot. And so the big question today that they asked was, do patients benefit? Oh, man, my chair just popped. Do patients benefit from going from a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid up to a high dose inhaled corticosteroid? Okay. Um, And so this was a retrospective cohort um, analysis. So basically they looked at a two large United Kingdom based EMR record databases, EMR record. Okay. Uh, That's like ATM machine, uh, EMR databases, and looked at patients, all patients who had been on a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid of any kind. Okay. And then they had 50,000 control patients and they looked at a much smaller number, let me find that out, uh, 6,800, who then bumped from a medium dose up to a high dose. And what they looked at was, was the high dose increase associated with fewer exacerbations? Was it associated with increase in antibiotic prescriptions or worsening outcomes? Now let's go to a quick review, right, when we're talking about this, and that is there are two different guidelines uh, that here in the United States that you have options on following, right? So there's the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program, the NAEPP 2020, or the Global Initiative for Asthma, G-I-N-A, GINA. Um, I I think both of those are terrible acronyms, uh, especially the NAP. Uh, 2020, the the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program. I think that's a terrible acronym. I've mentioned this on the podcast before. And, you know, each group has a different, um, a slightly different step-up therapy. Uh, Pretty much um, they have very similar, very similar um, uh, diagnostic criteria. They have very similar step-up criteria. The National Asthma Education and Prevention Program here in the United States has a little bit more details in terms of using FEVs, using exacerbation numbers, using nocturnal awakenings. Uh, Gina really talks about um, 
you know, overall asthma symptoms, if they're infrequent, if they have, if you need a reliever multiple times per week, if you need multiple times per day, if you have troublesome, uh, you know, nighttime symptoms, they, they deal, they have a little bit different scale in terms of their step up uh, than the national uh, here in the United States, the NAP does. Um, but Gina made news last year, I mentioned it on the podcast, where um, instead of just a short-acting beta agonist for step one therapy, they also recommend that, but they also consider that you can jump right on board and just treat asthma exacerbations or, or short-term asthma symptoms with an as-needed low-dose inhaled corticosteroid slash uh, LABA combo, specifically as long as it has formoterol. I talked about in this country, uh, the number one that you'd see there would be Symbicort, um, which would be budesonide slash formoterol. And they recommended you could use that instead of short-acting beta agonists um, in order to basically uh, reduce symptoms on an as-needed base. I talked about how from a cost perspective, um, you know, that's a big issue here in America, internationally with real healthcare and prices, um, it's not as big of an issue. Now, the this, this article today is really getting into step four, right? People with severe persistent asthma, okay? Steps four through six in the United States, steps four to five if you're following Gina. And so what are these? In America, in the NAEP, they talk about these being the symptoms all day, nocturnal awakenings, uh, almost on a nightly basis, needing your short-acting beta agonist multiple times per day, activity being limited, and having multiple exacerbations. Um, in Gina, they talk about this being severely uncontrolled asthma with daytime asthma symptoms greater than two times a week, nighttime symptoms at least two times a week, and activity limitation, or any acute exacerbation puts you in this step four, okay? Now, where this step four differs is that Gina really talks about doing medium-dose inhaled corticosteroids slash fomoterols. Um, they talk about doing medium-dose ICSs slash LABAs and short-acting beta agonists. They talk about possible trial uh, for three to six months of high-dose ICSs. But really in their, in, in most of their um, management steps, really focusing on medium dose with only a couple of times where they recommend high-dose inhaled corticosteroids. Now on the NAEP, again, very similarly, they don't talk about going up to high dose until at least step five or in, step, in, in, in terms of step six, but they're pretty consistent about medium to high dose inhaled corticosteroid slash LABA and then adding on a high dose uh, inhaled corticosteroid plus a leukotriene receptor antagonist if needed. And so this article is talking about people with severe disease do they benefit from that medium to high dose jump, right? And, you know, the, the hypothesis was, okay, we are going to see a bunch of people who are on medium doses, who are having exacerbations, and we're going to see these people that get moved to high doses that have fewer exacerbations because the high dose controls asthma symptoms better than medium doses. But what they found is exactly the opposite. And the fact that the meaning time from, from prescription from the medium dose inhaled corticosteroid to those who were bumped up to the high dose was nearly identical, okay? Uh, 2.7 years if you're on medium dose and actually a little faster if you jumped up to the high dose at 2.0 years um, on, on average for an exacerbation, right? Similarly, they found actually a higher risk for exacerbations, about 17% relative risk increase, right? From, for patients that jumped to a higher dose that, then, that stayed on a lower dose. 
Finally, you actually saw an increased number of prescriptions for antibiotic use, uh, increased number of antibiotics prescribed, longer antibiotic courses for patients on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids than patients that were, that were kept on a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Now, they tried in these, uh, in these comparisons to look for anything that would, um, right? So the first, first thing I thought about, um, and I head down to the discussion to look for this, was that, okay, the people that went from medium to high um, dose were clearly just because they were more severe disease, right? Uh, obviously, why would you, why would you um, increase these people um, after exacerbation to a high dose um, if they were just, you know, uh, you know, and, and so medium dose people must have been lower in severity. And they didn't see that, right? There seemed to be no difference, okay? And they, they talk about how there have been other studies. Um, they talk about Beasley et al. Um, this was a study back in, hold on a second, back in 2019 that talked about a time for a new therapeutic dose terminology and that um, this study talked, a, a second study, right, this older study in 2019, concluded that 80 to 90% of the maximum obtainable benefit from inhaled corticosteroids is seen with a low dose and that there is minimal additional clinical benefit from high dose inhaled corticosteroids in patients with moderate or severe asthma. Okay. So they talked to in this study that perhaps that people that are stepped up to high dose are more likely to come back in or have um, more frequent follow-ups and that may then, um, their physicians might be over-prescribing oral glucocorticoids, um, right? So oral corticosteroids, uh, they talk about in this study, as an, as an indication for an asthma exacerbation, um, or the fact that because they are more frequently coming in, the doctors are over-prescribing um, and over-diagnosing people with um, asthma exacerbations. But that, so that's a possibility. But they, they looked at these people and they actually excluded, I should also mention, they excluded the first 30 days after the change, right? So if you think, okay, well, they were having worsening um, asthma exacerbation, so therefore they bumped them up from medium to high dose. And then the next month, you know, obviously then they'd get diagnosed with an asthma exacerbation or come in need an antibiotic or they'd need an oral um, corticosteroid. But they actually eliminated that month-long period after the increase. And so this was more of a long-term, there wasn't much benefit, right? Um, there was a third study that they cite um, that was in 2021, so just last year, and they actually talk about the fact that some patients with high blood eosinophil counts may benefit from the step up in inhaled corticosteroid doses, right? And so uh, this is, gets back to our conversation about um, this gets back to our conversation about COPD management and how historically I have never even looked at peripheral blood eosinophil counts. And this is, again, yet another study that says there might be some benefits in those individual patients with a very high uh, blood eosinophil count that the higher dose corticosteroid, inhaled corticosteroids, might be beneficial for asthma, right? We talked about that in COPD management a couple weeks ago, talking about how if you have a high peripheral blood eosinophil count, you might actually benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. Otherwise, you might be actually harming patients with COPD, causing increased exacerbations. Here in asthma, we're talking about that same feature where if you have a high peripheral blood eosinophil count, you might improve with higher dose corticosteroids. But this study looked at the general population, right? And that, um, you know, that there is evidence that, you know, increasing inhaled corticosteroids might be harming patients. 
And why is that? Well, we know that inhaled corticosteroids, as we get increasing doses, do have some small systemic absorption, especially at higher doses, right? At low doses, you know, really, really low chance, et cetera, um, uh, of systemic absorption. But the higher and higher doses, you get suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, right? The HPA, uh, that can be uh, that can be altered, right? Um, you can see an alteration in the in the body's ability to fight off bacterial pneumonia. And so with higher and, and more prolonged, you know, systemic steroids, and we see this a lot more frequently with oral steroids, um, but also with high-dose, long-term inhaled, uh, inhaled steroids, we can see some increased risk for bacterial infections. And that can absolutely exacerbate asthma, cause a need for increased prescriptions, cause an increased need for medical attention and optimization uh, and, and basically hospitalizations. So my point is, is that in this study, we did not see and in fact saw more harm than good with stepping up from medium to high dose inhaled steroids in the long-term patients. And again, this study highlights the importance of peripheral blood eosinophil counts when we talk about inhaled corticosteroid doses. So specifically, the article also actually laid out the recommended. And so here in the United States, that's the Brio Ellipta, that's Advair, that's Wixella, um, that's uh, Air Duo, et cetera. United, uh, United States, that's also one of the most commonly prescribed um, asthma medicines. And so when we're looking at the doses that they recommended, um, they talk about fluticasone uh, propionate less than 500 micrograms per day, basically. And I'm not really going to get into all the other doses like budesonide, um, ciclesonide, um, and beclomethazone, but they have all those listed. But, you know, in general, choosing the medium dose option still gets the majority of the benefit and without any of the harm, basically. So I think that we will potentially see studies like this move the needle in terms of removing high-dose options from anybody but the sickest, most severe asthmatics. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that to a lesser extent in the guidelines right now. But again, steps four through six, it's more like step five and some options for step four. And again, um, in my practice, uh, more is not better. Uh, sometimes I will go ahead and uh, write a prescription for fluticasone, propionate, uh, you know, Advair basically uh, for 250 mics, uh, you know, one twice a day. Well, that hits me at the high dose, right? That's 500. That's 500 micrograms right there. And that's not even excluding, you know, I never use the 500 per 50 um, inhaler. I usually use the 250 per 50. But this is going to make me really reassess my prescribing habits and especially choosing the low and intermediate doses and maybe choosing some of the other options besides high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, given the fact that this study was pretty darn clear that there wasn't any benefit. Now, again, this is not a randomized control trial. This is not a prospective trial by any stretch. This was looking back, and there are lots of potential variables here that can explain these differences. But this is alarming to me that potentially we could be harming our patients with high-dose steroids. This comes just on the heel of me reading about um, articles from COPD management talking about inhaled corticosteroids um, hurting COPD patients without perf blood peripheral eosinophilia. And again, with these asthmatic patients, looking at uh, peripheral blood eosinophils might also help me guide my um, practice. So 
take it for what it's worth. I think this will be slightly practice changing for me. I think I'll be less, I'll be less aggressive with my inhaled corticosteroid doses, more likely to choose other medications um, for asthma prevention, uh, monolucast, et cetera, some other options to add on instead of going up to the high dose. Um, and, and hopefully this will reduce exacerbations, reduce need for antibiotics, reduce um, risk for pneumonia, and hopefully lead to better outcomes for my patients. So uh, thanks for tuning in this week. This has been Dr. Mark List with the Primary Care Pod reminding you you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great week. God bless.